where we've been in the canons of Dort talking about assurance. And in particular today, I'd like to look at canons of Dort, head five, articles nine and 10, which have to do with the assurance that we have of our perseverance in the faith or God's preservation of us in the faith, and then the ground of that assurance. So articles nine and 10, we may touch on article 11 a little bit. But just in terms of the background of this doctrine, like why are we spending so much time on it or why did the canons of Dort? In particular, because the Roman Catholics thought that the doctrine of assurance was arrogance and it was hubris and that you couldn't or shouldn't teach this. They thought that only those who had some kind of special revelation like Paul had could have any kind of assurance that they would persevere in the faith or that it would continue on. And part of that lack of assurance is what kept driving people back to the Roman Catholic Church in terms of it being part of the sacramental system. If you committed a mortal sin and died in a state of grace or or lived in a state of grace, you must keep coming back because you were never sure where you stood with the Lord or where you stood in terms of your salvation. And Arminians and Lutherans also say that you cannot be sure. Because they want to ask the question, how do you know that you're going to remain faithful? I knew I grew up um, in a church where you could potentially lose your salvation as well. And so as a young kid, I went forward at every single altar call uh, I can remember. Because I had a really tender conscience. I believed, hey, I was saved uh, last week, but I did all this stuff this week. Then what happens? I didn't hear about the doctrine of the imputed righteousness of Christ until I was in, in my 20s. And so that idea that you can lose your salvation or how do you know for sure or it's arrogance or hubris to say that I'm saved and I will remain saved and I'm the Lord's now and forever. And so it's really important for us. The Canons of Dort says it's a well-founded comfort and a well-founded consolation to know and to believe this doctrine. We don't want to make anyone arrogant about it. Our salvation ultimately doesn't rest in ourselves anyway. It rests in the Lord. Our confidence isn't in ourself. Our confidence is in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our confidence is in the Father. Our confidence is in the promises. Our confidence uh, is in the Holy Spirit. And so as we think through it, we want to, uh, to look at that, but keep that in the background that we want you to have confidence and assurance that you are God's now and forever. Not based on what you've done, but based on what he's done and his word and his promises, his character, his work. I heard one time that we are being fit for glory. I think I heard this from William Charles Godfrey, uh, if if I remember correctly. But that we're being fit, meaning from the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit, that we're being fit or fashioned for glory from beginning to end. And so we believe and confess wholeheartedly that Jesus just doesn't provide a way of salvation, but that Jesus saves, and that he saves to the uttermost. And that should give us some confidence in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and confidence that our sins indeed are forgiven, and that we are not our own, that we belong to our Savior, and that he makes us heartily willing and ready from now on to live unto him. All these things that we confess... Because if we don't have that comfort or that consolation, then we're kind of miserable souls. Or always looking to figure out what do we have to do to appease God or what do we have to do to earn God's favor or keep God's favor 
or we end up using other people rather than just loving them. We use them to give us tick marks with the Lord that we've done something good rather than moving forward from the confidence and the peace that we have from the very beginning that your sins are forgiven and that you are declared righteous and that you are adopted and that you are loved and that there is nothing in all of creation that can ever separate you from the love of Christ, which is what Romans 8 will get to, which we'll read Romans 8 in a minute. But that's kind of the background of why the Canons of Dort addresses this, what was going on at the time, and uh, some of the doctrines that continue on in our day that undermine or seek to discredit assurance. So let's read, if, you, if we uh, can, on page 913 in the back of the hymnal, Canons of Dort, Article 5. Head five, I should say, articles nine and 10. Article nine says this, concerning this preservation of those chosen to salvation and concerning the perseverance of true believers in faith, believers themselves can and do become assured in accordance with the measure of their faith by which they firmly believe that they are and always will remain true and living members of the church and that they have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And the ground of this assurance, accordingly, this assurance does not derive from some private revelation beyond or outside the word, but from faith in the promises of God, which he has very plentifully revealed in his word for our comfort. For the testimony from the testimony of the Holy from sorry, from the testimony of the Holy Spirit testifying with our spirit that we are God's children and heirs, Romans 8, 16 through 17. And finally, from a serious and holy pursuit of a clear conscience and of good works. And if God's chosen ones in this world did not have this well-founded comfort that the victory will be theirs and this reliable guarantee of eternal glory, they would be of all people most miserable. Just constantly wondering, God, God loved me yesterday. Does he love me today? Am I in? Am I out? Am I saved? Am I not saved? Just imagine the anxiety of that or the anxiousness of that or the fear of that or the doubt of that rather than what scripture is trying to say and calling us to move forward. You are free in Christ. You are loved. You can move forward, not for God's favor, but from God's favor. You have everything that you need in Christ. And let's look at one of the rejection of the errors, one of the rejection of the errors real quickly. Turn just a couple pages over on page 916. The rejection of the errors are really helpful for us to understand what is it that the canons of Dort are positively putting forward by showing what they're negatively reacting against. And so the fifth rejection of error says, it says, having set forth the orthodox teaching, the synod rejects the errors of those who teach that apart from a special revelation, no one can have the assurance of future perseverance in this life. For by this teaching, the well-founded consolation of true believers in this life is taken away from the doubting of the Romanists is introduced into the church. 
Holy Scripture, however, in many places, derives the assurance not from a special and extraordinary revelation, but from the marks peculiar, peculiar to God's children and from God's completely reliable promises. So, so especially the Apostle Paul, nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans 8.39, and John, they who obey his commands remain in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he remains in us by the spirit that he gave us. First John 3.24. So you can see what they're kind of trying to react against or the background in terms of some of the attacks on assurance. But we want to look at where do we find this in scripture or how do we know, know these things. The Canons of Dort said that it's many places in scripture. If you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, I was very embarrassed a couple of weeks ago when I was teaching class and I meant to read this text and I actually read a text from Matthew and then I was confused in my own head because the text didn't say what I wanted it to say and I'm like, this is not making sense. So, and all of you are kind and gracious not to point it out. But Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Last time I was here, we talked about how Jesus had um, told Peter that he was going to deny him um, and that the reason why he wouldn't ultimately fall away is because Christ prayed for him. And that's the text I wanted to read, but I read something in Matthew which didn't include that. So let me show you from God's word uh, in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times. Think about the seriousness of that situation, right? Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. In other words, all the benefits that I have for you, all the grace that I want to give you, Satan wants you for his own. And what is the confidence that Peter can have or anyone can have that they aren't going to fall away and that Satan isn't going to ultimately get them? Is it because Peter was such a good guy or because he was going to obey or because he was going to persevere? Because Jesus just said, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. The confidence and the surety of it was, but I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. The confidence and the assurance wasn't in Peter or what he was going to do, but in his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was standing before him. And that Jesus was going to pray for Peter, that his faith may not fail. And we're going to go to the final scene when they reconnect after the resurrection and Jesus asks some question at the end of John. But don't miss that. And last time we wanted to look at, where is Jesus right now, beloved? He's in heaven interceding for you, praying that your faith may not fail as well, applying his blood to you, interceding for you. You are his now and always. He is a high priest Having accomplished the work that he was sent to do, he's preserving that work and giving that work to us now through his Holy Spirit. The reason why we don't walk away, we would. We would all abandon the faith today if it weren't for the fact that Jesus is interceding for us and the Holy Spirit has given to us, sealing us in that. 
And so our assurance and confidence are in the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. We are fit for glory. Every blessing we have, whether it's in the material world or in the spiritual world, it comes from the Father, it comes in Jesus Christ, and it comes to us through the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is constantly working on our behalf and in us to preserve us in the grace and relationship and love and salvation that they have given to us. And that is meant to be a comfort and a consolation to us. So think about Jesus saying that to Peter, right? Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Then he also tells them, and when you turn, isn't that confidence? When you turn, go and restore your brothers. Flip, if you will, to John chapter 21. And I just heard one of our professors at the seminary this week did a devotional on this text this week. And if you get a chance to go on the seminary website and listen to the whole thing, it was really terrific. But he was in particular addressing, um, it was by Craig Troxell, Um, but he was addressing this encounter where now after the resurrection, Jesus and Peter meet up again. And Jesus says this in John 21, starting in verse 15. He said, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said, Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And see, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And see, he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to them the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is another great encounter. Imagine after Peter had denied Jesus, the scriptures say that their eyes locked. And you can imagine the grief and sorrow and the shame that Peter must have felt when he actually denied Jesus. And then the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And now after the resurrection, Jesus and Peter meet again. And he doesn't come and say, you know, how dare you? Where were you? You betrayed me. You did all these things. The first thing he said to him was, peace be unto you. And he came to him lovingly, he came to him tenderly. And then they have this conversation where, in essence, the three denials that Peter had are now overturned or reversed because of three affirmations that he has of his confessing his love for Jesus, just as Jesus had said would happen. But one of the things that Dr. Troxell had pointed out that I hadn't thought of quite this way is that the first question he says is, do you love me more than these? Meaning, do you love me more than these other disciples love me? Because remember when Jesus had said, when Jesus had told Peter that he was going to deny him three times, he goes, I will never, right? These other people may, but I'm not going to. And so his first question is really a comparative question. Do you love me more than these? That kind of gets at assurance. Have I done enough? Have I loved enough? Have I repented enough? Have I done enough good works? Jesus' next question is, do you love me? 
It's not, do you love me compared to everyone else? Or do you love me more than your brothers? Or do you love me more than other people with their various gifts and abilities? Do you love me? Because at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to, is Christ alone. Do you love me? And Peter says, yes. And he does. And he loves because Jesus first loved, but now he's not comparing it or weighing it compared to if he loves him more than John did, or James did, or Mary did, or someone else did. Which is where some of this problem with assurance can come in. Have I repented enough? Have I been sorrowful enough? Have I done enough? No. But do you love Christ? Do you love him? Do you recognize him as your Lord and Savior? Do you come to him and him alone? Then be comforted and be assured. If it was based on even the sincerity of our faith or the sincerity of our repentance, it's it's still not that. We're not saved by those things. We're saved by who those things point to as our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so quite simply, do you love Jesus? Yes. Do I love him imperfectly? Yes. Do I love him falteringly? Yes. Do I love him failingly? Yes. But I love him. That's great. We even have in our form when we come to the Lord's Supper, don't let your weaknesses or your failures in your Christian life to keep you from this table. Come believing sinner. It's not the strength of your faith, but the strength of your Savior that saves you. Weak faith, strong faith, and doubting faith all have the same Savior, Jesus Christ. The opposite of Faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is unbelief. We recognize that Christians wrestle with, we have questions. We have doubts. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Strengthen me in my doubt. We come every week to be fed and nourished and strengthened in that faith. But we believe. Come believing sinners. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Not do you love him more than the pastor? Do you love him more than the elders? Do you love him more than so-and-so? There are many people in this room who are far more faithful than I am and far further along on the spiritual journey and far more mature. If I compare myself to them, I'll be wavering. But if I recognize those brothers and sisters are pointing me to Christ and Christ is more than sufficient as my Savior, he saves to the uttermost. That is what gives us comfort. That is what gives us consolation. Does that make sense? Does anybody have any questions about that? Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yep. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, and so that, um, if you couldn't hear, Emily was saying that the scriptures seem to be written 
with an understanding that this, that we are assured, <laughs> that we are confident in our salvation and in our Savior. Otherwise, they would read a little bit differently, <laughs> or they would need to read a little bit differently. And they don't seem to be in doubt. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to look at Romans 8. Turn to Romans 8, if you will. We'll spend the rest of our time there. This is one of the most comforting passages in all of Scripture. If you're ever struggling with your assurance, just meditate upon this passage. It is just rich. All the way from no condemnation to no separation. There's no condemnation, it says in the beginning, and no separation at the end. And everything in between is just telling us who we are in Christ, whose we are, assuring us of our salvation. And Paul even says, I'm confident of this. I'm sure of this at the end. He doesn't want us to be doubting or wavering in the fact, am I saved? Am I the Lord's? Do you love him? Yes, Lord, I love you. Then all these things are yours. And behind that, you know that you only loved him because he loved you first. He told you that as well. His love creates or brings about your love. But it's interesting, if you have the Pew Bibles, which are the ESV, they do something which is really great, and when they capitalize the S in spirit, all but two times it's capitalized, because there's two times when it refers to our spirit. Every other time it's referring to the, the Holy Spirit. So as we go through it, notice that. It's talking about this is what the Holy Spirit is doing. This is his job. This is his mission. This is what he's all about in the life of all Christians. And so let's hear this then <clears throat> together. I'll read the whole passage uh, I can't improve on Romans 8 <laughs> to talk about the assurance that we have. So it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened through the, by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And before we move on, sometimes people think, and again, with this uh, uh, attacks on assurance that, are you in the flesh or are you in the spirit? And they think of it like the hokey pokey, right? You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. I'm in the spirit now. I'm not in the spirit. I'm in the spirit. I'm in the flesh. I was racked with that as a kid. As a Christian, you are in the spirit. Not, oh, I'm in the spirit. Now I'm in the flesh. I'm... You're in the spirit. You dwell in a different reality. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. It's not just that you believe different propositional truths than the world. You are in a different age. You are part of the new creation. You have been born again. You are not your own. You are alive to God where you were dead. And you aren't going to die again in that. You're going to 
physically die. But you can't lose your rebirth. The Holy Spirit doesn't make a mistake. You've been regenerated. That was the first part of uh, this whole section on assurance in the fifth hedge, talking about the reality of regeneration. You're alive. You're in the Spirit. Sometimes we grieve the Spirit, but He never leaves us. He never forsakes us. We're not in Him and out of Him and in Him and out of Him. What the Scripture says, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. That sounds assured, doesn't it? If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Think about that. The third person of the Holy Trinity who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the Spirit, small case right this time, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the Spirit, capital S, of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ Jesus, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and attain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. That's an amazing thought to think about, right? Jesus Christ, we already talked about, is currently interceding for you. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you. The second and the third person of the Holy Spirit right now are interceding for you. That's great consolation and great comfort that this salvation is yours now and forever. So for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that those, for those who love God, all things work together for good. Note that it doesn't say all things are good. All things work together for good. There's lots of bad things that happen and bad things that happen to us. It's not saying everything is good, but God can use everything for our good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously give us how many things, beloved? All things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine and nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am hopeful. I'm sure, the apostle says, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. Right? He ran out of his thesaurus. Right? There's nothing else. There's nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen. Romans 8 talks about all these doctrines, or it alludes to all these doctrines that we are justified, right? There's no condemnation for us. Our sins are forgiven and we are declared righteous. Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. We have union and communion with Christ. He dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. We have sanctification. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are adopted as children, heirs. We are loved with an unending love. We are called, predestined, conformed, and destined to be glorified. All of these things. We could spend hours just talking about any one of those things, but Romans is trying to say the whole kit and caboodle. As we would say, Christ plus all of his blessings. Christ plus all of his benefits are ours. From the Father, in the Son, through the Holy Spirit. Not one of them will fail. Romans even treats it like a closed set. Like you can't be called and predestined and justified but not glorified. If you're any one of them, you're all of them. You can't be called and not forgiven. You can't be forgiven and not declared righteous. You can't be glorified without having been justified. It's a closed set. Christ plus all of his benefits are yours. And there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from that. What a great comfort. What a great consolation. 
One of the fears of Rome, one of the fears of others is then that that will make us lazy in our Christian life, which is what the next articles will start to pick up. Well, if that's true, then you're just going to be lax in your Christian life and you're going to not do anything. We're not going to do anything for our salvation, but we must do things from our salvation. We've been called predestined to be conformed to Christ. Christians must bear fruit. That fruit isn't the ground of our salvation or even the ground of our comfort, but it's part and parcel of our salvation. We are grafted on to the vine. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit who makes us fruitful, causes us to walk uh, in the life that we have been called to. And so the, the text is really just trying to lay it on thick. And it's interesting how this can be twisted. My first year of college, I went to Olivet Nazarene College in Kankakee, Illinois, for a year. And uh, I didn't grow up Nazarene. And we were reading this passage in class, and I was kind of just starting to grapple with, can we know for sure that we're saved forever, or can we lose it? And the Nazarenes believe wholeheartedly you can use it, lose it. And so I was reading this passage, and I said, well, look, it says there's nothing in all of creation. You know, you're so in God's hand that nothing in all of creation could separate separate you from it. And he said, well, you can jump. Right? So my will is more powerful than death, (laughs) is more powerful than persecutions or famines or swords or anything else. It seems to be the exact opposite of what Paul is trying to do is trying to just lay on me this comfort that this professor, God bless him in his ignorance, wanted to take away from me. No, but you can. Did you repent hard enough? Do you believe hard enough? Do you do those things? My mom's here. She can testify. I have a really sensitive conscience. I was terrified of that. Paul knows that. We have an enemy who hates us. And so the word comes along and wants to lay it on thick. There is nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. It's interesting, Zacharias or Sinus, who was one of the chief authors of the Heidelberg Catechism, was writing about the attacks that Satan has against us. And I just want to read what he wrote about these in terms of like our own dialogue, like forgetting these things or not believing them or the tricks that uh, we play on ourselves or that Satan tries to play on us. And Satan attacks us and says, well, you are a sinner. And Zacharias is her sinus. That's true, but Christ has satisfied for all of my sins and redeemed me with his own precious blood and I belong to him. And Satan comes along and said, you're a child of wrath. And Zacharias says, or Sinus says, yes, by nature, yes. But I have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and there is therefore now no condemnation against me. I am Christ, and his righteousness and perfection are mine. Satan says, you are going to die. Zacharias or Sinus says, Christ has conquered death. And though I will die, I am already raised to a new life, incorruptible and imperishable in Christ Jesus through his Holy Spirit. And when he returns, I will also receive my body made new, 
raised unto glory like his own on Easter morning, the same body with which he currently rules and reigns all things. Satan says, you face many evils in this world. Yes, but my Lord defends and preserves me under them and uses them for my good and for the good of the church. You are going, Satan says, you are going to fall from this grace because you are weak and because you are frail. Zacharias or Sinus. Christ has not only merited and conferred his benefits upon me, but he also continually preserves me in them and grants me perseverance that I may never faint nor ultimately fall away from his grace. And Satan says, you are not one of the elect. This grace does not belong to you. And Zacharias or Sinus says, but I know that grace does extend to me and that I am Christ's because the Holy Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am a child of God. And because I have true faith, for the promise in general extends to all who believe. And Satan says, your faith is weak, you are weak, and your preservation falters. And Zacharias or Sinus says, yes, it does. Nevertheless, I have this blessed assurance that I am the Lord's, and that nothing can separate me from his love. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a pastor who has struggled with those on his own or heard them from the sheep that he was called to tend to because it gets attacked all the time. Churches get really frustrated with the Reformed and Presbyterian churches for insisting upon the assurance that you can have. But it seems like it's exactly the thing that Christ wants us to know and that the Holy Spirit wants us to know, and that the Father wants us to know, and that we, as pastors, elders, deacons here, popcorn's done, that uh, we want you to know as well, as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we recognize that it's difficult, and that's why we come week after week to be reminded, to rehear. To rehearse something is really to rehear it, right? We want to rehear over and over that this is true, that my sins are forgiven and I am declared righteous and I am his. Because throughout the week when we look to ourselves, our assurance is going to start to falter. And we want to lift our eyes not to ourselves or what we're doing, but to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us, who was raised for us, who is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, who is coming back for us, and whose spirit lives in us right now, assures us that we are his. The reason why we can even call upon him as Father, when I ask you, do you love him? The reason why is because the Holy Spirit made that a reality. Yes, I love him. Then be comforted and assured that your sins are forgiven, that there is no condemnation for you, and there's nothing in all of creation that can separate you from the love of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. Amen? Any questions? Comments? Yeah. I know you mentioned that people say this makes uh, us take for granted God's grace, but knowing this, it, it makes me cry all the time because I am so weak and many times think, you know, I know in my heart I'm a fraud in a lot of ways because I want to appear some way and knowing that, you know, my heart is sinful, but knowing also that I am all these things in Christ yep. and that I can't make it without Christ. And yeah. it, it, it should humble us instead of 
make us take for granted. Yeah. Things. Yeah, and in a culture today where there's so many different issues around our identity, right? The very first question of the Heidelberg Catechism says that I'm not my own, I belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Our identity is these things in Him, whose we are. It's meant to comfort us. In the next couple of weeks, we'll pick up. Dennis Johnson has a phrase that he says, this should be a stimulant to good works, striving, running, and endurance, not a sedative, right? So many people think if you tell people about assurance, it's going to make it a sedative that they're not going to do good works. Dennis Johnson says, properly understood, this is a stimulant. Because of this, ah, we can go and run the race that's set before us in the freedom that we have in Christ. I don't have to earn his favor. I've got his favor. It's covered. I'm free. I can go out and I can love and I can serve. I can stumble. I can fail. Not that I'm doing any of those things on purpose, but I can go forward in that confidence and that freedom that I am his and he is mine. And there's nothing in all of creation that's ever going to be able to break that bond. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news. We thank you that we are yours with a redemption that you planned from all of eternity. And then you sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to make it a reality by paying the penalty for our sins, receiving the condemnation that should have been meted out upon us, enduring your wrath, enduring hell for us, and that he was crucified. All of our sins were imputed to him. And we thank you that he was vindicated and justified by being raised again bodily three days later and that we have been crucified with him and we have been resurrected with him to a new life. And we thank you that we don't know this by speculation or by our own investigation, but we know this because it's a gift that you have given to us through your own Holy Spirit who gave us eyes to see and ears to believe and minds to understand and gave us a new heart and you transferred us from being dead in Adam to being alive in Christ. And Father, I pray that you'd be with my brothers and sisters here as they go about this week that you've called them to, that they would move forward in the freedom and the assurance that they have, that they are yours now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.